Hello, and thank you for joining us for this podcast from our Tech Dispute series, which over the next 20 minutes or so will focus on collaboration risks, where disputes arise and how to avoid them. I'm Jonathan Turnbull, a partner from HSF's London IP team, and I'm joined in this discussion by my colleagues, Victoria Horsey and Andrew Wells. To kick off, I will provide a short background on IP collaborations before we delve into the key issues of concern, namely, compliance by the collaborating parties to their contractual obligations, within a collaboration, how to handle and exchange confidential information, disputes around provisions on ownership or rights to use IP, and finally, termination of and disputes arising from collaborations. The first question to ask is, why are tech collaborations and related disputes becoming so prevalent? To my mind, the answer arises from the significant technological advances over the past decade that has resulted in tech pervading all sectors, from pharmaceuticals to energy to banking. From my own practice and experiences, it is clear that no sector is untouched and in several, technology has resulted in new and fast growing companies that compete with established businesses. Companies, even highly innovative and R&D based ones, are finding themselves in a position where they are left with the choice of either having to acquire companies to gain access to the new technologies and the associated skilled individuals, or alternatively, find that they need to collaborate to allow them to innovate in new tech-driven areas. Whilst both approaches have their advantages and disadvantages, we are focusing today on collaborations where each of the parties can leverage their capabilities technical expertise or funds of the other to develop and market a product or service in a way they would not have been able to do alone. By its very nature, the purpose of any tech collaboration is to generate new products and services. In doing so, significantly commercially valuable intellectual property, including know-how and trade secrets, is likely to be generated and, during the course of the collaboration, will almost certainly require confidential information and existing IP to be shared. It is therefore critical that the agreements that define the collaboration carefully account for and clearly set out how existing and future intellectual property is to be licensed, owned and used by the parties going forwards. Negotiations for such collaborations can be difficult and even once agreed, the IP provisions of these agreements can ultimately be a source of disputes down the line. The risk is particularly acute in sectors where the influx of technology is disrupting the traditional business model or practices of a sector. This is because the collaborating parties are more likely to have different mindsets and business models, which can result in very different expectations of what constitutes a successful collaboration and what each are getting out of the deal. The number of disputes arising from this is ever increasing, and we are seeing that several historic agreements have been drafted on the quite understandable basis that the collaboration will be a success, but fail to deal with or adequately deal with what happens if the collaboration stalls or fails. Collaborations are inherently risky, but can carry great reward. We as IP lawyers are also in the unique position of being able to sit, assist in the entire life cycle of a technologically led collaboration. The HSF IP team has extensive experience on all aspects of collaborations, from drafting the agreements 
to assessing the risks during their term, to dealing with disputes arising from them. We can help you build a successful collaboration or help extract you from a collaboration that is not delivering on what has been promised. So with that background, Vicky, perhaps you could tell us about some of the common areas where you have seen disputes arise. Yeah, sure. Well, I've been involved in drafting and negotiating a number of collaboration and R&D agreements over the years in all sorts of forms. And I've also helped clients deal with various disputes that have arisen over the life of those and also other collaborations. As you mentioned, John, the very nature of a collaborative arrangement often means there are many areas where disputes can arise between the parties. The likelihood of that happening often depends upon the relationship between the collaborators and their respective negotiating and bargaining positions both at the time of negotiating the agreement between them and during the term of their project. Probably the most common day-to-day -day area for disputes I have seen relates to compliance with contractual obligations. Collaboration agreements will of course contain many obligations on the parties. Sometimes these are joint obligations, but most often you see parties given separate responsibility for certain tasks or phases of a project to reflect their respective areas of expertise. By way of example, you might have one party responsible for the bulk of the R&D activities, securing regulatory approvals and perhaps producing prototypes, with the other responsible for scaling up manufacture and commercialisation. There are numerous opportunities for disputes to arise at each phase of the project in this context. For example, the parties may not agree that a certain phase is complete or that a product under development has met required quality standards or specifications. The best way to avoid or at least reduce the scope for these types of disputes is to be as clear as possible in the drafting of the agreement as to what the relevant target points are. So carefully define and document the development plan or project and perhaps the projected or minimum spend at each phase. Set out what each phase or milestone of the project is and what the deliverables at each phase are. Be clear about the standards and specifications against which results and progress should be measured. Specify when each phase or milestone will be considered to be complete and draft in a process by which the parties intend to determine and document success or completion. Essentially, each side should have a clear idea of what their respective roles and responsibilities will be at each stage. That's interesting, Vicky. Have you found that similar disputes can arise in circumstances where a party finds itself unable to fulfil its obligations or unable to fulfil them to the satisfaction of the other party? Yes, definitely. I mean, this can sometimes be as a result of external issues, for example, where it's not possible to obtain required approvals or else where practical issues and misalignments between the parties arise. This often happens where you have parties focused on different phases of a project's life cycle. So, for example, if party A is responsible for producing prototypes on a small scale to hand over to party B to scale up manufacture, it may not be immediately obvious to either side upon delivery of prototypes whether or not they are in fact capable of being scaled up. It's one thing to produce and sometimes even manufacture by hand prototype products on a small scale, but it's quite another to subject those products to far more demanding scale-up processes. And sometimes what works fine as a prototype is just not robust enough to be capable of mass production. For this reason, it can be really helpful to take time to understand in practical terms what is likely to be required at each phase of a project and try to anticipate where issues are most likely to arise. It's important to involve all of the relevant areas of the business to help inform this process so that appropriate protections can be put in place in drafting. So you're likely to want to involve R&D teams, marketing, perhaps scientific, regulatory or other specialist advisors and even internal finance teams to help structure terms regulating payments and invoicing in a way that is practical and workable. 
For complex, valuable or more long running arrangements, it's usually a good idea to set up some sort of joint development committee, which would meet at regular intervals to monitor and discuss progress and address any issues that have arisen at a, point, a particular point in time. With all of that said, it's worth bearing in mind that whilst it is preferable to place clear and detailed obligations on the party with which you're collaborating, on the flip side, it can also make sense to keep your own obligations to the minimum, to give yourself as much leeway as possible to cover delays, etc. That, of course, all generally depends on the negotiating position of each side. Thanks, Vicky. Those points also feed into the need to have processes for dealing with and escalating disputes, which Andrew is going to talk about later on. Are there any other areas where you have seen disputes arise going beyond the party's day-to-day -day obligations and the progress of projects in general? Well, I have seen some interesting issues arise around use of the confidential information and know-how exchange between collaborating parties. Most collaboration agreements will include provisions regulating and restricting use of confidential information and know-how, which is really standard but can be quite difficult to manage in practice. For example, employees and contractors involved in the collaboration may also be involved in other projects, work for other organisations or even be funded by third parties. You can have employees on secondment to the other party, for example, or employees who are working on one collaboration as well as other projects, which might potentially result in competing products to the extent competing activities are permitted under the terms of the collaboration, of course. And in those kinds of situations, it can be really difficult for a person to separate information and know-how they've obtained from working on project A from their involvement in project B and, of course, the rest of their working life. If you've learned how to navigate R&D challenges or have gained a lot of knowledge about the process for obtaining regulatory approvals because of your involvement in one project, it can be really difficult to essentially forget that and start from square one on the next project. Ultimately, this can lead to issues and sometimes even suspicion between collaborating parties as to how confidential information is being treated. In practice, this needs to be given a lot of thought and confidentiality provisions uniquely tailored to each project. And that's both in terms of their drafting and in terms of the practical steps that may need to be taken to ensure those terms are complied with and to minimise the risk of any unauthorised use or disclosure of confidential information that is input into or generated during the collaboration. Relevant personnel should be subject to appropriate confidentiality provisions and made aware of what is specifically permitted and not permitted under the terms of the collaboration. And that could be done by carrying out training or induction sessions at the beginning of the project. Parties can also consider ring-fencing teams, so in other words, using personnel who have had no involvement in the collaboration for other projects or any permitted ongoing development after the end of the collaboration. In practice, that tends to be an option only in the very largest companies, and it does have the disadvantage of using a team that does not have the benefit of the experience and skills acquired during the collaboration. The appropriate approach to take is likely to depend on the technology involved and the resources available. The parties may also wish to include non-compete provisions so that the collaborating parties are prevented from undertaking competing work in the same area during the term of the collaboration and possibly for a period thereafter, but any such terms must be carefully considered to ensure that they do not fall foul of any relevant competition laws and specialist anti-trade law advice should be sought as necessary. Andrew, I know you've worked on some interesting collaborations recently. I'm interested in your thoughts on where you think disputes are most likely to arise. Well, one area which can be a source of tension when negotiating collaboration agreements, which can also give rise to disputes later on, is around the provisions on ownership and or the rights to use IP in relation to the collaboration. 
parties will typically have to think about the IP they bring to the collaboration and license to each other, so background IP, and the IP that may arise from the collaboration, so foreground IP, who's going to own it, what rights are around it. Although at first glance it might sound simple enough, the definition of the buckets of IP and, for example, provisions around the purposes for which they can or cannot be used can get very complicated. And if there's any ambiguity in the relevant provisions, then this might have significant implications down the line if a party disputes, for example, the purpose for which it can use IP that was derived from the collaboration. Another scenario in which there's possible dispute is where it turns out that a party is not entirely free to contribute its background IP to the collaboration because it may be subject to third party rights or where the rights can only be used for research but not for subsequent commercialization. And due diligence is obviously going to be a key part of flushing this out. There's also a practical side to it, though. Once the legal framework's agreed in the collaboration agreement itself, it needs to be adhered to, or there's a risk that problems will arise later on. For example, if people actually doing the collaboration are sharing IP, which is not within the definition of background IP that was agreed. And on the point about the ownership of foreground IP, we often see clients assuming that joint ownership is the most sensible approach. But are there any potential pitfalls in doing that, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a sort of appealing logic to structuring things so that where two parties collaborate, the resulting IP is owned jointly. The thinking might be that it means each party can then go off and do whatever it wants to use or develop or exploit the IP arising for them from the collaboration. But in reality, joint ownership can be cumbersome and it often just restricts the activities of a co-owner unless the other co-owners give their individual consent to whatever it is that that first owner wants to do. If the parties insist on co-ownership, what it means is that the rights of the co-owners need to be carefully considered at the outset and then appropriate documents like cross-licenses entered into so that it be provided for the regulation of the use and exploitation of the jointly owned IP in advance uh, rather than getting caught out down the line and finding out you're, you're stuck. The alternative approach is for the party which is best placed to exploit the IP resulting from the collaboration to own the IP and to grant a license to the other parties to the extent that they require such a license. That party, the exploiting party, if you like, then accounts to the other parties in relation to revenue generated from exploitation, for example, by way of royalties. While that might be more straightforward than co-ownership, um, provisions governing the licenses will need to be carefully thought about too to minimise the risk that they lead to disputes. For example, around the scope of what is and is not permitted under the licence in terms of the field of exploitation, exclusivity, the rights to assign, sub-licence and so on. When a collaboration is successful and leads to a valuable product, these sorts of provisions are likely to come under close scrutiny by the parties uh, if they're have a mind to maximise their return and obviously in those sorts of situations disputes can readily arise. Could this also feed into disputes around termination of agreements? Absolutely. You can envisage that happening where the collaboration is successful as we've just sort of alluded to and a party feels the other parties aren't fulfilling their obligations and making the most of the technology which has been developed, particularly where one party is tasked with commercialisation. Equally, in scenarios where the collaboration fails, you can see how parties may come to blows in trying to attribute liability for the failure, um, again, where one party feels that the other has perhaps not pulled its weight. And, and we've certainly seen examples of these sorts of things leading to disputes. 
I suppose the most important point when trying to deal with these sorts of risks at the negotiation stage is ensuring that the termination provisions are as clear as possible. So that means specifying both what will trigger a termination right, such as failure to complete work, which in turn requires a clear work schedule or plan of some sort to be in place so you can measure against it. Or maybe the product fails to meet the necessary specifications. Again, you're going to need some clear spec agreed to compare against. Or the product may fail to obtain regulatory approval. And you can see that these sorts of provisions can bring the need for a lot of thinking and work to make them viable in reality. And it's just sort of the way it goes sometimes that if parties are in a rush to get the collaboration agreed and they're not inclined to discuss the potential for failure when they're sort of just trying to get everything put in place, they may be tempted to agree something at a high level and leave the detail to be agreed later. That may work, but the risk is that in fact it never gets done or it doesn't get done in sufficient levels of detail and the party's obligations are ambiguous, making it harder for a party to determine the contract than it would like or easier for the other party to do so, leading to disputes. Another thing to consider is around the level of obligations to which termination provisions are tied. Parties often include caveats such as that they're only required to be reasonable in carrying out their obligations under the agreement or to use best endeavours or reasonable endeavours or all best endeavours or whatever variation on, on that theme. And there have been certainly plenty of disputes around these sorts of terms in the past. And while they can be useful in negotiations to assist in reaching agreement, they can also add ambiguity around whether or not a party has a right to terminate the agreement and then lead to a judgment call on whether or not to do so with the risk of being sued as a, as a result. Finally, just to say, as well as clear triggers for termination, it's also important to think about clearly specifying the consequences that flow from termination. Thanks, Andrew. We've talked about a number of possible areas for disputes and collaboration agreements. How can dispute resolution clauses help to manage that risk? Broadly speaking, as you might expect, these clauses will dictate how disputes are to be handled. They range from very simple, so just conferring exclusive jurisdiction on the English courts, perhaps to deal with any disputes arising, through to fairly complex, for example, involving escalation of various stages with timelines and triggers for moving on to the next step. So, for example, there might be a joint development committee that can be consulted and failing which, if agreement can't be reached, then senior management representatives may be involved. And then it's only if these steps fail that things move on to more formal litigation or arbitration or what have you. The advantage of having some sort of escalation process is that it, it may avoid what starts off as a relatively minor disagreement blowing up into an all-out dispute involving litigation, basically just because there's no means by which the parties are obliged to come together to sort of nip things in the bud. Of course, if the parties generally want the collaboration to succeed, then they may just come together and resolve such disputes in any event. But the point is that unless provisions like this are included in the agreement, a party cannot be obliged to enter into informal resolution processes, which may raise the risk of the relationship souring to the point where litigation becomes more likely. Indeed, Andrew. And I think now that we have been through these key issues, I hope that it has given you a flavour of the types of risks that we are seeing in collaboration agreements and what needs to be considered to avoid or mitigate them. Obviously, in addition to these points, there are others and all collaborations have their own specific challenges or issues that need to be considered when reaching and drafting any agreement or during the collaborative process. And Victoria, Andrew and I would be delighted to help you navigate these at the outset or help you resolve any dispute that you may have 
from a collaboration agreement. It's been an absolute pleasure to discuss these issues with Andrew and Victoria, and thank you for your time. We hope that you've enjoyed our discussion and you will join us for the next in our Tech Dispute series. Goodbye. <laughs>